Good morning. Fantastic. Um, so it's good to see you all. Um, at least those to the side, the few in the front, nobody in the middle, and everybody in the back. It's good to see you. <laughs> um, welcome to Christ City Church. I want to echo what Drew said. If you are new here to our church this morning, we're glad you're here. My name is Robin. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And um, yeah, we are in the middle of a sermon series that we have titled, We Believe, and it's a series on the Apostles' Creed, and, um, and the idea is that, especially if you're new, that the Apostles' Creed is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, confession that we have in the church, where the church unified around different parts of Scripture, put them into phrases, and then we said, now this is what makes us who we are today. It's, it's about unity. And we believe that that's important for us just because of so many things that we've been through as a church, um, a lot of hard times, and, but also um, learning what does it mean now to really be together and to not just tolerate one another, but what do we center around. And so um, we're, uh, we're going by it, hopefully, or for at least for the most part, line by line. And this morning, we want to talk about the, the Holy Spirit. So with that said, I want to ask you to stand, and we're going to read God's Word together. At the end of each row, there's a Bible. If you do not own a Bible, you can keep that Bible. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1 for a few verses, and then we're going to skip down to Acts chapter 2. Um, so go ahead and pull that up on your phone or in paper. We're going to start at verse 9 in chapter 1, read down to verse 13, and then we'll skip over to chapter 2, verse 1. Hear God's Word. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia? Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. 
And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Father, this morning we come to you and your word asking that you would speak to us today, that we are in need of you to come make sense of things that are honestly perplexing and in many ways amazing. Even that word amazing, meaning like it in the old Latin, it it can almost like blow your head off. Like it's so amazing and so perplexing, we have a hard time like keeping our heads intact. And I pray this morning that you would allow us, you would help us by your Spirit to let your Spirit come and penetrate not just our heads though, but our hearts, and to speak to us very clearly this morning in ways that are compelling and convicting and comforting, and that we'd find ourselves not trying to avoid your Spirit, not trying to exploit your Spirit, not even trying to reason your Spirit out, but simply finding ourselves in a relationship with your Spirit. And in turn, having the gospel seep more and more to our hearts to where it overwhelms us, it conforms us to the image of Christ, the beauty of Christ. And so we give ourselves to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So growing up I, uh, in northeast Mississippi, um, you, could, uh, you could do the traditional church route of you know, first church on the corner, um, and, uh, and most of the people in my small town of two or 3,000, that's what they did. Or you could kind of live on the wild side and join the kind of crazy charismatics out at the country church, um, and that's what I did. And so, uh, growing up, I, I grew up in a non-denominational charismatic church. Now, if you don't know what that is, um, it's like... You ever turn on your TV late at night, and you get to a station maybe called TBN, and there's just like a lot going on? Like you don't really know what's happening, but you know it's things you're not used to, and there's just a whole lot going on on there, and people are moving a lot, and they're saying a bunch of things, things maybe you don't really understand, and you kind of go, well, I guess I'll just turn it back to Family Guy. Like, you know, like you're just not really sure what's happening, so you kind of go back to whatever it was before. Well, that was my church. So growing up, I grew up in a church that was known as the, the crazy charismatics, um, almost like charismania, which is really in line with the whole wrestling theme of my life with WrestleMania, except we weren't body, well, we were being body slammed by the Holy Spirit, but like we weren't body slamming each other. But it was the kind of place where like you would hear people speaking in tongues, you would hear people praying for healings, you would maybe even see a healing happen from time to time. You definitely would see um, Sister Lucy running around the church once a month, maybe, like, you would see all kind of things, and, and to me, that was just the norm. And every summer, we had, like, this big gathering called camp meeting, right? Anybody ever been to a camp meeting? That's so sad. You've missed out on life. You haven't lived life till you've been to camp meeting. So camp meeting is where, like, church happens, all right? Like, this is where you bring in the heavy-hitting speakers, and they're coming in, and you're going to get a word from God, and you're going to have, like, an epic time in the presence of the Lord, because the idea was this growing up, that yes, you could uh, simply be saved, 
But you just don't want to be saved. You want to have the empowering of the Holy Spirit. You want something super profound and supernatural. And so the church I grew up in taught that you could have a second feeling of the Holy Spirit, that when we read here in Acts 2 that there is a salvation that's been received, but now there's the Holy Spirit to come. When the Holy Spirit comes, there's going to be tongues of fire right? There's going to be things going down. There's going, to be, there's going to be people speaking in tongues. There's going to be healings, and there's these profound epic movements in your life. And this is what I grew up with, and this is what I saw after every week. Every week I came back Sunday after Sunday for this huge epic experience, and I wanted it for my friends. Matter of fact, so much so, um, I, uh, I wasn't a very normal kid in high school, right? Like, I was, I was a kid that, like, during homeroom read my Bible. Like, I had a special case for it, and I would argue with people. You've heard these stories. I was the kid that on Christian t-shirt day, which there actually was a Christian t-shirt day, would wear my Christian t-shirt, and on the front it would say hell, and on the back it would say you're going. Like, these are just, like, things I believed in in life. And, um, but I also was an athlete, like, it was either church or, or sports, but, like, not academics. And so, um, I pitched and was pretty good at pitching, and we, like, won a bunch of games. And so, people were kind of confused what to do with me. Because, like, if I pitched, we won, but then they'd have to hear me talk about Jesus. And they'd rather kind of put me in a corner. And I was convinced because they didn't have the Holy Spirit, they were going to hell. It, it, was, it was just a really um, normal relationship. So... All that to say, I remember one game I was pitching, and we were blowing a team out, and all of a sudden, because I was always telling the guys, like, hey, why don't you go to church with me? Just come to church with me. Like, come get the Holy Spirit. And they're like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so one day, we're pitching in a game, and all of a sudden, um, the shortstop says, hey, Robin, I tell you what, if you strike out all three batters, we will all go to church with you. And everybody looked around, and they said, sure, why not? If you strike out all three hitters here, we'll all go to church with you. And I thought, my time has come. Like, this is what the Lord has called me to do, is strike out these three hitters and get those eight players on the field to go to church with me and get the Holy Ghost. This is about to go down. So, like, I am working harder than ever, right? And so, the first hitter, like, hits it to shallow center field, and our center fielder makes a spectacular catch, and the crowd goes wild, and I'm stomping around like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm missing out on what God is wanting to do with my life. And I, I looked around at everybody, and I said, hey, guys, two strikeouts, just two strikeouts. And they all said, yeah, sure, except the third baseman. He's like, nah, dude. I said three. <laughs> so everybody's like, okay, two strikeouts. I'm like, okay, thank you, Lord. My time has come. And then I remember to the next hitter I pitched, and he hit it up the middle. Our second baseman made a diving stop. He threw it to first base. The crowd goes wild. And I am, like, deflated. And then finally I say, guys, just one, just one strikeout, just one strikeout. Will you go to church with me? And they all said, yes, Robin, except for the third baseman, of course. And then I struck out the last hitter, and you would have thought I won the World Series. My arms go up, and I'm like, hallelujah, like in the middle of the field, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. And, and everybody's like, we just beat like the worst team in the league. Like, what do you care? They all go to church with me that Sunday. They're all there, and I'm praying for the Holy Spirit to get a hold of their lives and something epic to happen. And you know what happened? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. They went back to me in the exact same way as they were before. Now, my upbringing constantly was trying to find the epic of the Holy Spirit. 
I wasn't okay, though, with the normal of the Holy Spirit. And what I want us to talk about this morning is to call out that search for epic. And what does it mean for us to even be able to live with the normal, the deflating moments, the moments where we're like, I thought it was going to be bigger and grander and better than this. But to do that, we actually have to start, though, with the epic side. Now, many times we either try to, because we hear those stories, some of you are going, I want to go to your church, but here's what happens at churches like the one I grew up. They don't mean to, but a lot of times they're trying to exploit, almost control the presence of the Holy Spirit. If we do X, Y, and Z songs, if we have X kind of service, the Holy Spirit will come down. And it ends up being many times an exploitation. Not all the time, but a lot of times. But then there's the other side where people go, I want to avoid that completely. Like, I don't want to interact with the Holy Spirit at all if that's what it means. And then there's this third niche that says, neither exploit nor avoid, but just reason away. But I want to be really clear, none of those work with the Holy Spirit. You can't exploit, avoid, nor reason away the Holy Spirit. There's a quote here from Sam Storms, a theologian. He goes, the Spirit comes to us as a fire, either to be fanned into full flame and given the freedom to accomplish His will, or to be doused and extinguished by the water of human fear, control, and flawed theology. The principal aim of the Spirit in what He does is to awaken us to the glory, splendor, and centrality of the work of Jesus Christ. But this does not mean that it is less than the Spirit at work when He awakens us also to His own glory, power, and abiding presence. What He's saying is the Holy Spirit is meant to be the flashlight of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit shines Jesus and the Father, points to them. Don't you see them? But, but the truth is, the Father and Jesus point to the Holy Spirit, saying, you need to see how amazing this part of the Trinity is, this person the Trinity, and what it means in your life. And yet, you can't exploit it, you can't avoid it, you can't reason it away. You only can be in relationship. So let's look here what this moment would have meant, because we see an epic moment happening within the midst of God's people. Jesus, Jesus has ascended to heaven. And he sent down his spirit, like he promised, from John chapter 14 to John chapter 17. And they're experiencing something that would look almost unique and unheard of. And yet, if we look more closely at this epic moment, we're going to find it actually mirrors another very epic moment for God's people. So first, it says here that they were gathered together on Pentecost. Now, the word Pentecost is a Greek word that means 50 count. Not 50 cent, but 50 count, all right? So it means 50 count. It means 50 days, like three of you got that joke. It means that, or you're like, that wasn't very good. It's like 50 days after, after the resurrection, or for an ancient Near Eastern person who was Jewish, it's 50 days after Passover. And so, this day of Pentecost has arrived, but it, it was actually known for a Jewish person not just as Pentecost, the Hebrew word for it would be the word Shavuot. I want you all to say this word with me. We're going to put it on the screen. You ready? Shavuot. That's right. Shavuot. Good job. So, the idea behind Shavuot was something that was started about 1,500 years before this moment. And Shavuot itself was considered to be one of two things for 
a Jewish person. One, it was a celebration of harvest seven weeks after Passover. That during this time of between Passover and up to this moment, there would be a great harvest throughout the land in the promised land. And this was a celebration of that. Matter of fact, they would read during this time in detail and sit with the book of Ruth, because the book of Ruth is happening during this time of Shavuot in the Old Testament, this time of harvest, this time of celebration. And it was recognizing how God has blessed them. But it wasn't just, though, originally a time of celebration of the harvest. It was actually a time to recognize and celebrate the giving of the Torah. Now, the Torah for an ancient Near Eastern person was like the ultimate. It was penultimate compared to Yahweh himself. But if you couldn't be in the presence of Yahweh, you had the Torah because the Torah was the law. Now, it was instructions. Like, they didn't look at it as something that was like weighing them down. They looked at it as something that would like bring them up to connect with their God. So here's what's happening. God's people are wandering all throughout the desert after being set free from slavery, from the Egyptians. And for those next six to seven weeks, they're like, we've had the Passover, and we're just wondering, like, does this God really want to be with us, or has He set us up to exploit us? Like, are we really going to be in a relationship with this God? Now, there's a lot of Bible I want to read this morning, so just kind of keep your Bibles handy. We're going to put as much as we can on the screen. I'm going to read this first chunk, though, from Exodus 19. So in Exodus 19, here's what God then is saying to Moses. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples." And for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses speaks this to God's people, saying something epic is about to happen, something profound is about to happen. So they all gather together. We'll put this on the screen for you. This is verse 17 of chapter 19 in Exodus. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now what do we have here? We have somebody going up to an upper place. We have fire coming down to this place, and you can only imagine the mass bewilderment of what is happening right now amongst all the people. Sounds familiar? Somebody going up, fire coming down, and it's all centered around this idea that God's going to give them these commandments. And it goes on to say in chapter 34, after Moses spends 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, 
Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded all of them that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. There is a ceremony that's going on here that God has said to his people, I want to be in relationship with you. I want us to have meaningful interaction. For that to happen, there's going to be some guidelines I'm going to give you. And there's going to be ways that we know that this relationship can work. Boundaries, if you will. Ways that we now know that this is going to be an okay relationship. And God's people are excited because this means you have a relationship with a real God. The law has come down to them. And so to them, they're like, this is, this is making a covenant. And making a covenant is like getting married. Like that's how an ancient Near Eastern person who was Jewish looked at this moment. That it was a marriage ceremony. Listen how one writer and scholar puts it. He goes, in the Talmud, which is like ancient writings about the Old Testament, Shavuot is referred to as the marriage day between God and the Jewish people, between heaven and earth. The Lord is the heavenly groom who said, accept me. The Jewish people represent the beloved bride, and the Torah represents the marriage contract. A midrash says that Mount Sinai was lifted up over the heads of the Jewish people like a shupa, which is a wedding canopy, when the Jews first drew near to hear the Ten Commandments. This would have been amazing. The wedding day of God and His people is Mount Sinai. We look at that day as like, oh my God, how oppressive these laws come down. Don't you understand? This is exactly what they were looking for. It's even what you're looking for. You're looking for guidelines when you're interacting. You're looking for like boundaries about how to interact in relationship. It's what makes it healthy and safe and prosperous. And this is what God's people have found. And Mount Sinai is draped out like a wedding canopy, a shupa. And this is what Jewish people would stand underneath even to this day to get married under. It's this covering representing God's presence. It's amazing how they were looking at this. So for them, Shavuot was this profound day, this marriage ceremony. And yet the history of God's people throughout the Old Testament time and again is them cheating on their marriage, cheating on their spouse. Time and again, that's the story of God's people. This is, if you ever wondered why the Old Testament talks about God's relationship with Israel being like a marriage, it's because of Mount Sinai. You can look back to Exodus 19 and 20, this giving of the commandments, this marriage ceremony. But time and again, God's people are wayward, running away from Him, always looking for more of an epic moment. I need more of an epic moment. These normal moments in life are not okay. And they keep running to find the next hit from the next God, the next idol. And then we see this beautiful passage in Jeremiah 31 where it says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each 
one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now go back to our passage. In Acts chapter 1 and 2, we have God's people going up to a room. We have fire coming down. We have people wondering, what does this all mean? And we see clearly, here's what it means, that God is finally making good on a promise. That you thought Sinai was great. Wait till we get to this moment. You thought the fire coming down from heaven on Sinai, where I give you the law, etched on stones with my finger, will be great. Wait till I etch my laws on your heart with my finger by my spirit. Is something that God's people could only dream of, but never truly maybe buy into because it sounds so big and so grand, so amazing. But the story of Pentecost is a marriage ceremony. See, whether you realize it or not, you are, if you are filled with the Spirit and Jesus is your Lord, you're married to God. That's what the Spirit represents. And you, some of you are single are like, I was going to stay single my whole life. Bad joke here. No, you aren't. You're married. But that we are married here to God through the Spirit. That's what it represents. Pentecost was a wedding ceremony, whether you realize it or not. You are in relationship like a marriage to God through the Spirit. The fire has come down, it says here, and has consumed us and has now brought us into relationship. This is why in Hebrews 10 we read, verses 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those, being, those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. God, through His Spirit, has come down, and on your heart and mind is writing the boundaries of relationship with Him. He's writing on your heart and mind. What does it mean to be in relationship with Him? It's happening from the inside out of you. And the story, actually, of God's people, the Jewish people, was one of racism. Like one of the main reasons of the cross, this is what Paul says throughout the book of Romans, wasn't just that if you were a bad person, you could become saved. It was that all this racism has kept thousands and millions of people from coming to know God because God's people thought it was just for them. But God's saying, I'm for the nations. So the point of the cross was now to make a bridge to the rest of the world. The point of the Spirit was to come down on all nations we see here in Acts 2. That's why it was on all these people who were of lower class, higher class, or no class to the Jewish people. And all of them are now coming together into this marriage ceremony with God's Spirit. So that's what it meant for them, but here's the question now, what does it mean for us? What does it mean that you are in a relationship, that you are now in a marriage with the Holy Spirit? Raise your hands if you have been married. Raise your hand if you're married. Let me just see this first. Okay, put your hands down if you've been married over five years. 
If you've been married, if you've been married, like, let me say it this way. If you've been married five years or under, keep your hand up. Okay, great. If you've been married two years or under, keep your hand up. All right. Now, here's the thing. Those of you who've been married only a couple of years or less, do you believe, you can put your hands down now. Thank you. Do you believe that you understand all the ins and outs and the beautiful riches and the knowledge of what does it mean to have a healthy relationship with your spouse? You all right? No? None of you? Are you sure? Because right, I for sure thought I did when I first got married. I thought, I got this thing. This is so going to work out the way I believe it should in life, right? And, and honestly, um, it didn't work that way at all. <laughs> like, it, it was rough in the get-go for me and Suzanne. And after a year of marriage, we're like, we need to get some marriage therapy, and we need to really work on this thing, because this thing is going down fast. And like I saw all these other people around me, like, they're high-fiving each other as a married couple, they're loving life, and Suzanne and I are like, this ain't working. Like, we need to talk about this. And really, you're the problem. Like, no, 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 you're the problem. No, you're the problem. Like, marriage is messy, right? Marriage is difficult. And many times in marriage, we try to maybe... Like, okay, I want to control this person. That's what you first maybe try to do. I want to control this person. I want this person to line up on my schedule and what I want in life. This is when we eat breakfast. This is how we fold our clothes. This is when we do laundry. Like, this is when we go out. This is how much money we spend. And that does not work out very well for you, does it? Yeah. And others of you, when you're in that relationship with that person who is trying to control you, you want to what? Avoid it. All right, let me get away from you. You are an insane person. Like, I can't deal with you. you. You actually have no really good grasp on life itself. So you need to kind of be over in your corner doing your crazy things, and I'll be over here living a normal life by avoiding you, right? But then you have this third party that says, okay, here's what I want to do. I'm just going to try to, like, figure you out, and I'm going to study you, and I'm going to learn you almost like you're a specimen. Yeah, that doesn't go well. Trust me, I've tried that, all right? Like, let me kind of just study all the ins and out because you're, you're not in a three-dimensional relationship when you're doing that. Whenever you're trying to exploit control, whenever you're trying to avoid, whenever you're trying to simply just reason away a marriage or relationship, it doesn't work. You're going to run out of space. See, a, a really good marriage at the end of the day takes trust and intuition, like, it takes trust. Like, it's the trust of going, are we going to be with each other in this? Without trying to control or figure each other out, are we going to be with each other in this? Starts with trust. And then it takes intuition. Like, like, do we know each other? Like, the marriages that get good is like you kind of just know the other person. So you know not to bring up finances to this person on a Friday night on your date. Like, that's not the best time to talk about finances. Oh, there's intuition right there right? You know it's not tr best, like you have intuition to like, maybe we need to have these conversations or do this thing. Like maybe on your birthday, like some people here, right? Some people here really enjoy like grand, great birthdays or Father's Days, right? I, I, I've just heard about that. So you really enjoy that. And so you learn the intuition like, hey, let's really connect. Around, like let's not plan just to like clean up the yard on Father's Day. Let's actually spend time together on Father's Day. Suzanne's never asked me to clean up the yard on Father's Day. I just want to be clear. But the point is you learn each other. But when you're really going to find that trust and intuition in a marriage, it takes time and honesty. Like it's just going to take time. It takes time to get to know each other. Like, it takes space. you got to create a lot of space to be with each other, 
to figure some things out. You can't go running out with arrested adolescence, I mean, with arrested development as, as, a, as, a, as a young married couple with your friends. Like, ah, this will be fine. Let's just hang out with all of our friends right now. No, when you get married, you're like, you're married. Like, you leave your father and mother and like a whole bunch of people and cling to your spouse. That's what you do. And it takes time. But it, but it also not just takes time, it takes honesty. And I don't mean honesty like, let me be honest about how messed up you are and how wrong you get it. No, that's not honesty. That's control. Honesty is, here's what it's like for me to be with you. Like, when you do X, Y, and Z things, I become X, Y, and Z ways. Like, here are my feelings. I get really afraid or I get really, you know, I get really nervous about all this. I'm really hurt by it when you do that. Like, it just takes a lot at the end of the day of time and honesty if you're going to develop trust and intuition. Does that make sense? Well, it's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't, now notice something, your wedding day was epic. Your wedding day was fantastic. And it, it needs to be good for you. I love doing weddings. Like the bride comes down in white, like the, the groom's like all in a tux. Everybody's smiling, facing each other. They're glad to be there. The question is, a year later when we sit down and talk about their marriage, how's it going? Like it's not epic anymore. It's just normal. And I think the thing that cripples us many times with the Holy Spirit is we're looking for an epic Sinai or upper room moment. We're looking for the Holy Spirit to come down and consuming fire and, you know, burn up all the wrong bad things in our life and bring about all the good things in our life and bring about the healings and the miracles. But the reality is this, your relationship with the Holy Spirit is meant to be like a marriage, like a normal marriage. Like this kind of is what we do. Like we have dinner together, like we go to bed. When we get up, we go to work the next day. We have some kids along the way, like it's normal. But like we get on this track that everything in life has to be so epic and grand and amazing. And if we do that with the Holy Spirit, we will miss out on what the Holy Spirit is trying to bring to us. And what is that? I would say it's three things, really simple. That the Holy Spirit comes to compel us, the Holy Spirit comes to convict us, and the Holy Spirit comes to comfort us. And these are some verses I'll read that I want you to hear about what the Holy Spirit comes to do. The first is this, the Holy Spirit comes to compel us. I'll read this. We'll have the verses itself on the screen, but you can just look it up later on. In Romans 8, verse 15, it says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The first thing the Spirit tr comes to do is to compel us that we are God's. Not that you are a God, but that we are God's apostrophe, yes, that we are his, that we are his children. See, the very first thing that we find ourselves questioning day in and day out is, God, do I belong to you? Do you belong to me? Like, are we with, are we with each other? Or am I going to have to figure this out on my own in life? Like, that is the most basic cry and need of your heart and my heart every day, is that, do I belong to you? Because life is scary out there, and I try to put on my big boy or big girl pants and go out there and deal with it, but honestly, I'm just really afraid, and I'm really scared, I'm really lonely. I'm really sad about this, so I need to know something, like, are you with me in this? 
And the first thing the Spirit comes to do in your heart on a daily basis, if you'll make time for it, right? And if you'll be honest with yourself in it, is that He comes to bring a compelling reality that you are the Lord's, that you are God's, that you are His child. And He also comes, though, to compel us to acts of love. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14, it says, For the love of Christ controls us or compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The Holy Spirit comes to compel us, not just that we are God's, and we belong to Him, but that we are actually meant to serve others now. He compels us into loving action. Christ died for you, and so therefore you give your life for others. So here's what it means. It means when you're out in public and you have those small moments of you're like something, I feel like something speaking intuitively to me right now, and it's telling me that I'm God's, that I'm His, I belong to Him. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. When you're out and you see someone who is homeless and you're like, I need to give them some money. I need to like help them out and reach out to them. You want to call it your conscience, but it's the Holy Spirit speaking to you saying, Christ died for you and loved you. Why don't you just give them five bucks? Or why don't you simply just go and be, that person's crying and hurting. Why don't you go sit with them, not try to control them, not try to help them figure out why all this has happened to them. Why don't you just go sit with them? We want to chalk that up to just, oh, that's just life. It just happens. Listen, when you are a person who is, who is saved by grace, Jesus is your Lord, and you have now the Spirit living inside of you, the Spirit then is compelling you to live and act in certain ways. And it's not just Jiminy Cricket who's kind of jumping in like, let me be your guide, although that's partly kind of the Holy Spirit is but it's something more profound. It's something intuitive on the inside of you, speaking to you. And the more you learn the Spirit and give time to the Spirit and are honest with the Spirit, the more you'll learn to trust the Spirit and the more you'll learn intuition in your life with the Spirit. And I know that doesn't sound like super epic because it's meant to just be super normal. You're meant to have a normal abiding relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5, 16, he says, now let us live by the Spirit. And then he goes on in verse 24 to say, let us walk by the Spirit. And the way you live and walk by the Spirit is that it actually in the Greek, to walk in the Spirit means to create a well-worn path and walk it time and again. To walk by the Spirit means that you're creating a well-worn path in your life and walking it time and again. That does not sound epic but it sounds normal. It sounds like what you're created for. It sounds like you're just taking a step day by day saying, what does it mean for me to be compelled by the Spirit today? Yes, I am yours, God. And I know right now I don't want to believe it, but I am yours. And you give the Spirit room for that. And yes, I do want to respond to the person in front of me because they are hurting. That's what it means to be compelled by the Spirit. But we're also now convicted by the Spirit. First, we're convicted of sin. Here's what it says in John 16, verse 7. Jesus is saying, I will send him, being the Holy Spirit, to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, I want you to notice something. It's not your job to convict another person of their sin. 
It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict a person of their sin. It's not your job to convict a person of their sin. It's the Holy Spirit's job. Now, you can pray for the Spirit to convict somebody of their sin, but the more you try to convict somebody of their sin, the more you're going to end up being a controlling person who they want to avoid. Instead of being a compelling person that's with them and loving them because you're loved. And it's going to be really difficult for you. But at the end of the day, the Spirit is the one that convicts of sin. The Spirit is the one that says to the world, Jesus is Lord, and if you're not bowing a knee, something's wrong. See, the Spirit is the one that comes to you in those moments where you're not bowing a knee, though, and you're like, man, this ain't right. Like, I don't know if I need to be doing this. Like, that's not you just having a moment of clarity. That's the Holy Spirit coming to you saying, what's going on? Don't check out. Jesus is your Lord. It's happening not just at 8 in the morning, but at 8 night. Not just 1 in the afternoon, but 1 in the morning. The Spirit coming to you saying, this is off. No, it's not okay to go down this path. He's coming to convict you of sin. But the Spirit also comes to convict us to act. Look at Acts 2, verse 37. Paul's preaching this profound sermon to all these people who are experiencing the Holy Spirit. And he says, and they say to him, or it says, now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Paul said, and Peter, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, it convicts you to act, to take a step, to move forward, to not stay where you were. Mornings like this, when you hear a message and you're going, gosh, I just, I'm feeling really convicted right now. It's not always about sin. Sometimes it's about you just stepping out and stepping away from where you were, trying something different, saying, I, I need to like apply this to my life. That's the Holy Spirit coming to bring conviction for you to act. So the Spirit comes to compel us. The Spirit comes to convict us. And lastly, the Spirit comes to comfort us. Look at Romans 5. 13, 15, 13, it says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to comfort us and bring hope. That's what the Holy Spirit comes to do. It's in those moments where you're the most hopeless, the moments where you're convinced the world is so broken around you. It's the moment when you see what's happening in London or in different parts of our country, with racism or bigotry, whatever it may be, and you go, is there ever a chance for this world to change? And the Holy Spirit comes to you and says, yes, yes. He comes to bring hope to you in the midst of hopeless moments. And the Holy Spirit comes to comfort us, not just in bringing us hope, but He comes to comfort us in our loneliness. In John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus is saying, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, a comforter, it means in Greek, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. You ever just wake up some days and wonder, how am I going to get through this? Like, you know, that question is rooted really like in loneliness. Like, how am I going to get through this today? It's amazing. 
I find that with my marriage with Suzanne, that I can go through the worst days in life, but when I know that she's with me and I'm with her, like, they're just, like, doable. Like, it's hard. We have a lot of hard moments, but I find that when we're together, like, it allows us to, like, simply be able to go through it more easily. And that wasn't the case for our marriage for years. For years, I was constantly on the search for this epic place, this epic thing. I needed life to be like camp meeting growing up in Northeast Mississippi at the worship center. That's what our church was called, the worship center. I'm looking for these epic moments to happen in life. I need to go and create this next epic thing. But just like when Elijah is praying and he's, he's looking for the Lord and there's a storm that comes. He wasn't in the storm. There's an earthquake that comes. He wasn't in the earthquake. There was fire that came. He wasn't in the fire. And then there was a whisper in the wind. And that's where God was. Because I was always looking for epic, I couldn't be okay with just normal. And I found it was like this heavy burden I would put on her and on myself. And it created a lot of loneliness for her and for me. So much so, it wasn't really until a couple of years ago we were sitting around for um, our anniversary. It was actually last, last September. And last year, I can tell you this, was, was the, maybe the hardest year of our marriage. Not because for, between the two of us, but just life. Like so many difficult things were happening in life. All the extra bills you got to pay, you don't realize you're going to have to pay. You know, dealing with a child and their development. And we were sitting around and just reminiscing on this, though, past year of our marriage. And both were talking about, like, how great it's been. And we were like, why? Because it's been such a sucky year. How's it been such a good year? And then, like, she just looked at me and she said, well, it's because we're with each other. Like, we're, we're less lonely. Like, I don't have to question if I'm doing this on my own. I know you're with me. And it was like, of course, Eureka. Like, what if… What if the Spirit is meant to come and just be with us in those really difficult moments to bring a comfort, to compel us, to convict us? What if it doesn't have to be something so profound? What if church itself doesn't have to be so profound? What if church doesn't have to be so epic? What if we could just come together and worship and it be normal and it be okay? And everything's based off this incredible sermon or did all the music line up for you just right? What if the high watermark every week is like bread and juice? What if that's it? And what if you could come and worship and know that here you're reminded that there's a God who's looking to compel you, who's looking to convict you, and looking to comfort you, and that means be with you. That means walk with you. That means when you leave here today, you can have the God in this room go with you. And you can have a relationship, not that you try to control or avoid, exploit, to always figure out, but just be in relationship, because the best relationships are things you can't always wrap your mind around, but somehow you're able to engage your heart with. And that's what this is like with the Holy Spirit. Yes, are there epic moments? Absolutely. Does God want to come through His Spirit and bring healing and restoration? Do I believe that the, the gifts of the Spirit, do we believe doctrine as a church, the gifts of the Spirit are at work today? Absolutely, we do. That the Spirit did not die off in the first century. That right here and right now, you can interact with God's Spirit. That He's come to bring all these things and more healing in your life and restoration. But that we don't just go on these wild chases of something epic, but we can live with the journey of normal and let God be with us here and now. Friends, I would say to you, if you will allow that to happen, the normalcy of a relationship with God, 
you'll find that's pretty epic. You'll find that's pretty amazing. When you take your hands off and quit trying to control it or even avoid it or even try to always figure it out, but just let it happen to you. I know, I know, I know that's frustrating, especially for any of our type A friends in here. But what if you just let your hands open and say, I want to experience you today like a healthy marriage that doesn't always like kill it in life, but we're just like with each other in life. That's what's waiting for you this morning. So we're going to now go before the Lord's table and take communion. And here's what I ask for you, is that as we are taking communion, as Drew walks us through that this morning, that you would just think about this. Where has my desire for something so epic with God kept me from having something so normal with God? Where have I missed out on just simply being convicted and compelled and comforted by Him in those moments? That I'm always looking for this huge, grand, big thing in life, but simply can't just live with the fact that God is right here with me. That maybe all your problems aren't being solved the way you want, but somehow He's still with you in life. Can that be enough? Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and pray that through your, your Spirit, through these taking of sacraments, we would find ourselves somehow experiencing like a really sweet presence right now, that you are with us, that you've come to compel us, that we are yours and compel us of, into action, that you've come to convict us of sin, that you've come to comfort us and bring us hope in those hopeless moments, whatever it may be. I pray this morning now as we come before you and your table that you would meet us here in both the normalcy and how epic you really are. In Jesus' name, amen.